Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. If the Detroit Pistons can do it, the Detroit Red Wings can do it. And to all of you naysayer and doom scrollers and pessimists who are saying, oh, the Detroit Pistons have sapped all the luck from other Detroit sports, to you I say, what luck, my good friend? What luck have you seen that you're trying to preserve? What is there? There's been nothing. It's been a it's been a, a desolate land in terms of luck of any kind. There has been no such thing. Troy Weaver and the Detroit Pistons broke the curse. Detroit sports are now back in lottery business. That that's all I have to say. I think this is a good thing. It works for the city of Detroit, and it also works. Uh, that logic also works for this podcast specifically. Though I am a mutt when it comes to sports fandom, I do have, you know rooting interest for all Detroit teams as long as they're not playing my favorite teams in other sports. So you could say, well, yeah, the Pistons won the draft lottery, but I'm not a huge Pistons fan. So as I count, I'm a Raptors fan. They also won a draft lottery spot. So we are in business. This is the first draft lottery I have ever partaken in in my life in any sport where it wasn't meant with just, I hate this. I'll never get over how funny your sports fandom is. I do like it, though, because it gives me something like tangible to hang on to as I hate you, because a lot of people think I hate you for the sake of hating you, which is, you know, largely true. Uh, but that does give me a lot to go on. Uh, but no, I think I think you said it correctly, Brad, last night. I cannot believe we lived to the day where the <laughs> where a Detroit team won a draft lottery, plain and simple. Um, it's... The Pistons had a good chance, like statistically speaking, they were among the top teams, but it's also nice that the timing worked out how it did. You know, Red Wings fans all but gave up for the 2021 draft lottery, which I think was the right way to approach that in terms of hope, because the number one overall pick this year isn't going to be like last year and it won't be like the next two seasons. Um, but reinstilling hope just in time for the Shane Wright and then Connor Bedard and the, uh, the Matvey Mijkov lotteries. That is, is it a perfect setup for us to be disappointed again? Yeah, absolutely. Is it exactly what we need as sports fans to continue our lunacy? Even more so, yes. So thank you, Detroit Pistons, and also hell yeah, hell yeah. I wish I followed basketball enough to know. Like, is there a superstar in this draft? Is there a Shane Wright here for the Pistons, or is this more like the 2021 NHL draft? From my understanding, Cunningham is a very, like, really, really, he's a clear number one pick, but I don't know if we're talking Shane Wright levels here. Um, but there is a consensus number one, unlike this year. Yeah, yeah, it's Kate Cunningham. Yeah, it's not, it's not the Owen Power draft for sure. Uh, I, a couple people asked me, do you follow all Detroit sports the same way as you do the Red Wings? And first of all, the answer is no, I don't follow anything like I follow hockey. Hockey is, in my, it used to be in my blood until I started this podcast, and now it is most of my waking existence. But um, there are things – there's only so much I can do. I have to follow the Lions because I, I really, really love football that much, and that just takes it out of me. I pretty closely follow the Tigers. With the Pistons, it's like I do root for them. I follow them to some degree. I'll pick it back up when things aren't so depressing just because I only have so much soul to be sapped out of me. 
if that's fair weather, by all means, but I can only do so much. Well, uh, in any case, we're hoping that the Pistons draft lottery luck does float into the rest of Detroit sports. Uh, for now, let's jump into hockey and the podcast. Welcome to the Winged Wheel podcast. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I am Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. And I'm Evan. Uh, before we get into it on the Winged Wheel podcast, we do, of course, want to talk to you about the Jamie Daniels Foundation. Uh, it's a children's foundation initiative that was established in memory of Jamie Daniels and founded by Jamie's father and Red Wings lead announcer Ken Daniels and Jamie's mother, Lisa Daniels-Goldman. The foundation strives to end the stigma of substance use disorder and provide support to those struggling with the disease or who are in recovery. To learn more and support the Jamie Daniels Foundation, visit jamiedanielsfoundation.org. All right. Uh, we have a special interview today with Will Scouch from Scouching, which we'll get into in a little bit. But first, we want to cover some uh, hockey news. Um, very quick playoff update. At the time of recording this, the uh, Montreal Canadiens are one win away from the Stanley Cup Finals, which is a hilarious thing to say out loud. And uh, as are the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I believe they're playing right now as we speak. Yep. They, yeah, yeah. Kucherov went to the room with an injury. Like they are partway through the first and tied zero zero. But Tampa Bay just is coming off a eight nothing drubbing of the Islanders. So, which series do we want to do a quick uh, update on first? Actually, let's start with Montreal. Of this is hilarious. Start with Montreal. This is hysterical. I don't care what technically is in play here in terms of luck, injuries to Vegas, whoever else. I think this is the funniest thing in the world. I want to see Montreal keep winning. I want to see Montreal go to the cup finals. I want to see them win in six. The team of destiny, playoff hockey, they showed up at the right times, whatever it might be. This is so funny. They're, what makes them fun is they're probably the only team of all 16 teams in the playoffs that we can actually consider a true Cinderella story. Because we knew how good the other divisions were, and we knew all four teams going in were pretty good. Like the Islanders are two wins away from the cup final right now, and they were the fourth seed in their division. And none of us are sitting here surprised about that. Tampa with us was a third seed. Even Nashville at four, they gave Carolina a pretty good run, and none of us were super surprised about it. Um, but you know, we all kind of made the jokes about how bad the North was, and Montreal barely made the playoffs in that shitty division. And here they are, one win away from the cup final. So it's it's nice in the age of parody to actually get a team completely unexpected making a run because everything's gone right for Montreal. They are playing the best hockey they have played all year. Their goaltender is playing the best hockey he's played in five years. Um, they've had a lot of injury luck in the sense they haven't had many and their opponents have had key injuries at key positions, the key players, um, like universally. <laughs> so it's just been the stars aligning and Montreal has absolutely capitalized on it. And it's fun as hell. I wish it was a team I liked more than Montreal because, you know, they're Montreal, so you can only enjoy it so much, but, um, yeah, it is super fun like i i knew going into the conference finals when we get to the cup finals i would cheer for whoever won between montreal and vegas because i don't really want either of the other two teams to win it so 
if it's Montreal, that sucks, but here we are. It's especially funny watching Vegas fans flounder. Not because, like, I think Vegas's Twitter account's pretty annoying. Uh, and I don't begrudge fans of expansion teams. I like when you fans watch hockey, but this is kind of part of the experience, right? Like, having the, that five-minute power play and blowing that lead against San Jose, that was actually something special. Not every team goes through that. But losing to a team in the playoffs who you have no business losing to because they show up and play this I, they just squeeze out wins when they when they shouldn't by all accounts. That's you know that's part of the grind of being an NHL team. You have this amazing team. You just defeated the buzzsaw that is the Colorado Avalanche. You are the odds-on favorites to come out of your side of the bat, the bracket, <laughs> and you just get shit on by the David in this situation. So yeah, that's part of it. So I mean, if Vegas comes back. They're playing great hockey too. Of course, that'll be fun. A Vegas. Tampa or Islander series would be great, but yeah, I can't help but cheer on Montreal. I think this is funny. Montreal versus the Islanders in the finals. Who says no? Uh, most fans. There'll be low attendance, but very high attendance in Long Island and Montreal. I resent that notion. I think it's fun. I think that'd be fun I'm as all hell. for team chaos, especially when it involves Montreal, even though I, I think their fan base is crazy is the putting it lightly um i think it's i think it's a it's hilarious that they keep winning and even my buddy who's a diehard habs fan like he feels like he's playing with house money right now so i hope they i hope they go to the finals and hell if they win they win that'd be that'd be the craziest thing that's happened probably in the last four days so i do want to cover one thing with montreal just because it's been tweeted at me a bunch because obviously i've said i don't believe in montreal and when i say that understand they get full credit for this playoff run i'm saying i don't believe their team as it's built is sustainable i've all the stars are aligning for them right now and that's great but does anybody expect them to be a cup contender again next year i mean they almost missed the playoffs in the north division this year they are not a perennial powerhouse but it's good that they're getting their run out of it because again i'm very pro Mark Bergevin, not because of the moves he makes, but because of the chaos he creates. Um, But the other note I've been getting is people have been coming at me saying, see, this is why we keep Blashill. See, this defensive shutdown style works. And you're right and you're wrong at the same time. And I'll try and make this quick. The Habs are one of the best defensive teams in the league, and they play a very low event system, and they play it successfully. The big difference between Montreal and Detroit is Montreal is looking for that offensive turnaround. There is no team in the playoffs that gets more breakaways than Montreal because they will turn that stifling defense into an offensive rush like that because they are looking for it. Their first caught Kenyemi's goal last night came off a Josh Anderson breakaway because as soon as Montreal smothered uh, Vegas at their own blue line, I want to say Mark Stone had the, no, that was the Perry goal, but yeah or Perry to Caulfield, but Mark Stone turned it over. Montreal grabbed the puck. The two forwards were already going. They hit him in stride and got a goal out of it. Detroit doesn't do that. Let's just be clear. They are trying to do what Montreal's doing, but they are not doing it nearly as well, and they are not utilizing the offensive chances that Montreal is looking to create from the defense the defensive system they deploy. So I just want to be clear about that. So people don't think it's apples to apples. 
You know what I say to you or anyone else even wanting to have this conversation is, by God, don't do that to yourself. We just had to watch yet another terrible tanking season of the Detroit Red Wings. We knew it was coming, but that doesn't make it easier. Don't apply the Detroit Red Wings to everything in hockey right now because it's an exercise in futility. It's exhausting. You're not going to do anything productive for your mental health or your fandom. Think Shit sucks right now. You're not going to find some, you know, silver lining right now that's going to make the Red Wings seem incredible before the Red Wings actually start to get better. And that's coming. Moritz Sider is going to be playing hockey for the Red Wings next year. Like, that is amazing news. Just wait for that. For now, don't worry about the Red Wings. Enjoy the Montreal Canadiens doing what, doing what they're doing for what it is. Enjoy watching, if you hate the Islanders, enjoy watching them lose 8 nothing for what it is. Don't draw parallels. It's just, it's going to suck. So you didn't let me get to my final point, which is there is a big positive spin for Red Wings fans. There legitimately is. Montreal is this deep in the playoffs with no superstars, an aging defense, no depth on defense, and like three pretty good young players contributing up front. They don't have a Lucas Raymond in their system. They don't have a top 10 pick this year. They don't have a Mort Sider in their system. They, there is an element of if Detroit replicates this, they could do it better and more sustainably than Montreal is doing it right now. So I'm not saying that is going to happen. We don't have a carry price yet. Don't start on the wall step shit, but there is a path where Detroit does this and does it better or longer. I'd say right. Nick Suzuki is turning into a bit of a superstar. Oh yeah. They have like him, Kenny, Emmy and Caulfield are, legitimately their future (laughs) there's not much else under the age of 25 there i think jeff petrie now has uh has become ageless apparently he is a zombie he is actually age is no factor anymore for jeff petrie he's uh he consumed enough souls where it's no longer a problem for him did they ever say what that what was going on with that no no my my guess is, you know, everyone's had those days where your stomach hurts, you have to run to the washroom, and you burst some blood vessels, straining. and All of the blood vessels? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for the diagnosis, the doctors just made him watch 28 Days Later and went, this is stage three. Yeah. You, he Or he's a villain from like, or he's one of the, the yeah, characters you have to defeat in Demon's Soul, something like that. Someone, uh did a picture on um on twitter it was what was the mountain was it the mountain's brother or something in game of thrones with when he's got the helmet on you know in the final season or did we all wipe that from our mind it looked exactly the same they both had like (laughs) bloodshot red eyes (laughs) no that was yeah that was the mountain himself the reincarnated version right yeah the one that was brought back to life yeah 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 85 actors for the mountain too it was terrible that feels like 85 years ago yeah season eight god what that's one of the worst things that's ever happened we'll just pretend it didn't happen that honestly whoever that was that shot harambe they're somehow responsible for season eight of game of thrones as well like i'm adding that to the list of shit that happened after that gorilla died season eight of game of thrones is in nothing has gone well since 2012 no um okay uh, we have a few minutes here. 
to talk about awards. So the NHL has been slowly revealing winners of awards. Um, just to kind of go through them, the Lady Bang, Jacob Slavin. Some people might think that it's worth arguing about the Lady Bang. We have better things to do, so moving on. The Selkie uh, is Barkov, and you know we might get into some more spirited debate about that. There's some really good candidates for the Selkie, but I think Barkov's a perfectly fine winner of it. Jack Adams, Rod Brindamore. We've all wanted to run through a wall for Rod Brindamore. Mark Messier Award went to Bergeron. I don't think people are really debating that. GM of the year. And I know, Brad, you have some words on this. Lou Lamorello. And all I can say is congratulations, Barry Trotz, for winning that award. I think Jay Fresh Hockey actually said that on Twitter before anyone else, too. <sighs> Lou deserves a lot of credit. And Lou deserves credit from people like us who have shit on him for the decisions he's made. Because you know what? His team is and has been successful even after the departure of John Tavares. Yes, absolutely. I just don't know that he deserves the win this year. Maybe, yeah, he made the moves at the trade deadline and they have been paying off. But, you know, what happens if they lose in the conference finals? Does he really deserve that win this year? I don't know. And they vote on this award through the second round, I believe. Like, it's insane to me that this is the only award that's voted on this late into the season because it's criminal to me that Joe Sackick doesn't win this award because not only was his team the President's Trophy winner this year, they made it to the second round, lost to a very good team. They're sustainable. If you want an argument against why Lou Lamorello should win GM of the year, just go to the Islanders cap friendly page. If they do not win a cup this year and maybe next year, they are in a world of trouble for a long time. Their aging veterans are still being paid a lot of money for a very long time. Sure, he built a good team. Nobody's going to argue that. And if they win a cup before all these contracts start hitting their bad years, it's absolutely worth it. That's a really damn big if, though. And do you know what teams don't have that problem? Uh, the other teams in the final four. Well, Montreal kind of does to a certain extent, but you don't need to sign, I don't know, friggin' Jordan Eberly until he's 35 for $6 million or whatever it is. You just don't. So if he hits it, great. If he doesn't, it's a problem. And it's a yearly award. I, I get that. But what did he actually do this year? He made one pretty good trade at the deadline, a first round pick for Zajac and Palmieri. Worth it from what we've seen so far. He extended Barzal for a few years. What else did he do this year? Like, that's right. what I don't get. But in the NHL, the absence of bad moves puts you above half of the pack of the GMs. Like Steve Eisenman, fair for I'm a lot of it, the time is has doesn't do much because he can't, and is still one of the better GMs in the league, even when doing nothing because he's not making mistakes. I'm not sitting here and saying Lou Lamorello is a bad GM. I'm just saying he is far from the best GM. I think the awards voting is flawed for for the GM of the year. I think you somehow have to take the last two years into account when doing it. And just having it being like have it as a rolling system. Well, GM can't be a yearly award. It is such a long process to build a good team. The GM of the year award should be 
All right, the guys who built the good teams are now coming into their window, so let's start giving them their awards. You can make that argument against Vegas, uh, for Vegas. You can make that argument for Colorado. Uh, you know, and there's a handful of other teams. Like Julian Breezebaugh doesn't win this. I mean, he's had like tight rope walked that cap ceiling for four years to absolute perfection. Like that's the hardest job a GM would have. So I I don't know. This is it is what it is. Like the four top four vocators were the top four teams or the four teams still left in the playoffs, which again is flawed because what, what six weeks ago, most not just us, most of the hockey world was pretty sure Mark Bergevin was losing his job, and then everything goes right for them for a month. And he's a finalist. He's the runner-up for GM of the Year. Stupid. Evan, final thoughts on GM of the Year award or any of the other awards before jumping into the interview? Um, Yeah, I'm somewhat surprised Lou Lamorello won. But when you see who does the voting, it's a little less surprising since it's basically who votes on it. GMs and league executives. Yeah. Yeah, that's... There's no surprise that Lou Lamoureux won the award then because those are his best buddies. Um, but it just, it's kind of confusing. Like Don Waddell, Joe Sackick. Like, I think there were GMs that had a way better year, maybe two years, um, than Lou Lamorello. They lost Devon Taves for two seconds. Yeah. So it's it's just confusing to oh me. Oh my god, I forgot about that trade. Um but you know, Lou Lamorello turned the Islanders into a professional organization. Like how long have they been just sort of, you know, a bit of a circus, a bit of a clown show internally? Lou comes in there and it's all hands on deck, everybody's pulling the same way. So there could be some behind the stuff scenes that uh, influence it more so than just paper transactions. So maybe that's something I, I don't really know. Um, there's just, yeah, a bunch of GMs who just did substantially better things this year as well that I thought deserved a lot more credit than Lou Lamarillo's one trade that sort of worked out this year. I think the explanation that's going to hold here as we wrap up this topic is that Lou Lamarillo, Lou Lamarillo has a lot of friends in the voting group, and whoever's not his friend uh, is deathly scared of him, so they didn't want to piss him off, and that's why he won the award. That's what we'll roll with. Um, also, on uh, talking about that, uh, the Islanders-Lightning series, quickly, Braden Point just scored, extending his goal-scoring streak to nine games, one shy of the NHL record now. Yeah, you remember when Braden Point was a uh, restricted free agent and people thought he wouldn't be worth the offer sheet? Remember when Tampa Bay Lightning weren't a bunch of cheaters? I mean, hey, they they haven't forfeited any draft picks. That's Who's Arizona. worse, Tampa Bay or the Houston Astros? Astros, by far. I agree. Not even close. By the way, sidebar, this uh, soap opera that's going on in Major League Baseball right now. Oh, man. If you want to, make the, if you want to see the NHL look like a competent league, just follow the MLB. Uh, about the uh like pine tar on and the what do they call it what is their like official term like subs like a banned S- substance sticky stuff it's yeah. 
like Max Scherzer's like stripping on the mound last night for getting checked three times and the umpire's literally rubbing his scalp <laughs> to see if he's got anything on it. It is, you can't, it feels like an onion article. Like it's so bad. They let them cheat for so long and then their solution is equally ridiculous. It's just, I love it. Just doing a quick lice check mid game. <laughs> right now is like, Every league, well, not shouldn't say every league, but most leagues are just seeing who can get in their own way the most. The MLB is right up there, and so is the PGA right now. So it's actually kind of, oh, I guess the NHL's there too, but it's kind of a two-horse race. But yeah, it's so ridiculous right now. Meanwhile, Formula One is the only one doing anything right by allowing cameras in with Drive to Survive and they're getting a ton of new fans. So I hear no what, one ever complain about the Formula One as a league organization. Do they have any any bad oh. habits? Dude, it is toxic as hell. Cheating is actually part of the sport. Once you get That's ingrained I, I knew in that. it. Yeah. Once you get ingrained in it, there's so many accusations of cheating. Essentially, the best teams find the biggest gray areas to work in, but in terms of like base level con- like entertainment it's entertaining as hell anyhow speaking of entertainment we do have to jump into this interview with will scouch a lot of great prospect talk uh always exciting when we can have scouting back on the show uh so without further ado uh enjoy this conversation we had with will and we'll see you on the other side will scouch has returned at long last, after quite a few requests, actually, Will. Uh, and for those of you who haven't heard um, Will on the show before, uh, he is the founder of Scouching, uh, McKean's hockey contributor, and you'll know him, of course, from his YouTube channel, uh, Scouching. Draft, prospects, analysis, all those fun buzzwords, uh, does a great job of it, and we're pleased to have you back. Thanks for joining us, Will. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Uh, busy year, eh? Yes. <laughs> very, very busy. A little strange. Uh, but it's been fu- it's been fun in a way. Uh, it's kind of getting to the point where I think I'm pretty much finished the the real nitty gritty work. But it's yeah. been a it's been a trip, and I'm about ready for a bit of a break. Well, uh, I'd love to say it's happening soon, but we got about another month ahead of us here. Yep. Um, and so I'm actually going to open up the questions here with a broad strokes one before we get into the nitty gritty. This year's draft class has been touted by everyone, us included, as one that's not exactly, you know, Alexi Lafreniere, Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, obviously level at the top end. While pulling things apart and and sussing out the information that was hidden because of a very atypical year of scouting, were there any things or pieces of information that you found that pointed to the contrary? Basically, my question is simplified. Are there any hidden gems in this draft for teams in the top 10 to be super, super excited by that they wouldn't have expected? Yeah, it's funny. I don't think, you know, I'm not I'm not the kind of person to look at a draft class and say they're bad. I think I think that it's kind of unfair to do that when they're talking about kids playing hockey and chasing their dreams and stuff. But what I'm thinking with this year's draft class is that you're right. I don't think as of right this second, there is that. Lafreniere, McDavid, Eichel, sort of reputation player. Um, I, I don't think those exist this year. At least not. Maybe maybe they can develop into one, but not right now. But that doesn't mean that there's no good players. I think what I think what's interesting about this year is that there's very few, very certain players. 
there's a lot of question marks that are very big with a few guys at the top end. And it's going to come down to development, I think, on a lot of this. You know, I think that's a big thing that a lot of people don't think too much about is how the teams handle and analyze and nurture the talent that they draft and how much of an effect that can have on their careers. Um, so when I look at this year's draft class, especially in the top 10 or 12, I think there's guys where if if all breaks right for all of them across the board, we could have a great draft class here with a lot of really unique different talent profiles. But if they're all kind of mishandled or their development doesn't really go as planned or they don't put on the strength that they need or whatever for whatever reason over the next three, four, five years, then we might look back on this draft and go, yeah, you know, like we shot our shot, but it didn't happen. Um, there just isn't that much certainty. And it's not just because of the pandemic and everything. It's It just comes down to player typing. Last year, there were pretty clear cut cases, you know, guys like Lucas Raymond for Detroit. Like I, I feel if Lucas Raymond were a, 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 eligible in this year's draft, he would be a top maybe three guy to me just because of the certainty and the way that he plays. Like, I just love how he plays. And it was pretty much consistent every time he stepped on the ice. Alexander Holtz, lethal goal scoring threat, decent mobility. You know, there's some question marks to his game overall, but in terms of his fundamentals and what his results were and how good of a shooter he is, you know what you're getting. Um, same thing with guys like Marco Rossi, Tim Stutzla. It was like there wasn't as many situations where I'm going, that's a that might be a, a problem. Uh, whereas this year, there's a lot more of that, especially, and I think that's typical when there's a lot of defensemen at the top end as well, where defensemen by nature take a little while to really refine the defensive side of the game. So yes, on one hand, it's not necessarily like super amounts of blatant star power, but I don't think this draft or, or group of players as a whole is necessarily the worst that we've seen since pe what people are saying, like 1999 or 2012 or whatever. I just think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens over the next little while. So branching off that, one of the more interesting things I've seen in the conversation around the top end of this draft is there's been a lot more of those I don't know what we'd call them floor versus ceiling debates because a lot of these prospects in the top 10 have a very high ceiling, but because of the question marks, um, you know, something like hypothetically Brent Clark skating that make that question mark that much bigger, even though there's belief that the rest of Brent Clark's skill set could make him a superstar. If you had to pick out two guys going in each direction, for that debate, uh, who's a realistic pick for Detroit at six? I think we can agree Power and Beneers are probably gone by six in almost every ranking I've seen they are, but everybody else seems to be on the table. Yes. Um, who, if everything goes right for all these guys, which prospect there has the highest ceiling? Just we're talking perfect scenario skill-wise. And then based on the deficiencies of the players in the top 10, whose question mark is the biggest question mark well i mean it's it's interesting like i think the the first name that pops in my head if you really want to if you think there's a player that i is it's reasonable they could be there at six is and you want to swing is ken johnson i think that if you you know if i'm the the detroit red wings like based on what i've seen them drafting and such i have question marks about questions about down the middle down in the future and you know who's going to be that top center that plays with dylan larkin and and all that stuff. But I think that with Ken Johnson, you can kind of 
say we'll worry about that later like this year in terms of guys that can play down the middle especially in the top end of this year's draft to me that list is Matthew Beniers and that's the only guy where I'm comfortable that he's going to be a real heavy impact NHL center whereas other than that I mean you might be able to get Atu Ratu later in the first round with that second first round pick and that's a that's a decent bet you know like we said very wide range of possibilities in that career but if it works out and you get him at 23 you got a tremendous second first round pick um, but if I'm looking at a guy where you're looking for just pure, I want someone who's going to score a lot of points and just put bums in seats, uh, you know, in the arena, that would probably be a Ken Johnson to me at six. And I imagine he'll be va- available. Um, guys like William Eklund, I think will be also available. And if Eklund is a guy that's wearing uh, a Detroit Red Wings jersey, him with Lucas Raymond on the same team with whoever other Swedes they've added. And I will guarantee you that, you know, their Swedish scout, uh, or their whatever Swedish legion of scouts they have, probably like William Eklund if they've liked guys like Raymond and Niederbach and Valinder even, you know, where they're not perfect, but there's definitely a lot of talent there. Um, and, and Eklund, I think, is a guy who's completely flying under a lot of radars, at least in terms of who you're hearing murmurs about as guys that might jump up a little bit. You know, you might see a Dylan Gunther go top three or a Brant Clark go top or, uh, you know, Brant Clark top five, Mason McTavish top five. And if that happens, guys like Eklund are going to be the ones that get pushed out. And it makes sense that he would be one. You know, he's not super big. He hasn't played in a little while. He's fought injuries. He had COVID. There's a few things that kind of all go together that might bump him down a little bit and just be the second option. And if that's the guy at six, whether it's him or Ken Johnson, I think it's reasonable that both those guys are available. And if you really want to swing, I mean, Wallstead could be available. And if you get yourself a franchise goalie, uh, it's risky, like obviously, um, but so is Ken Johnson, in my opinion. And so if you if, if Iserman loves the goalie, I would say, you know what? Screw it. He he makes your job a lot easier. He makes your life easier. And if he if he works out and no one's ever done what he's been doing, that could be another option. But I think the most realistic option would probably be like a Ken Johnson, in my view. All right. Well, you you broached the topic, so I have to ask the question. True or false, Jesper Wallstedt is the most talented player in this draft. Ooh. Uh He's he's among the top group, I think. You know, the the thing that it, it does kind of annoy me to see people saying, oh, you never draft a goalie in the first round. You never draft a goalie in the first round. Never, 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 never. I most of the time would agree. It's really risky, especially if you're not drafting guys who are already playing pro hockey. It is it is a it is a risk. But we're talking about a guy who is playing big minutes on a team that did not play particularly well defensively in the Swedish Hockey League, and no goaltender at his age has ever done that before. Um, and European, I've watched enough European hockey to know that they find any and all reasons not to play young players. And and so if they have a level of trust in their goaltender to play him in pro hockey for a majority, or I don't know if it was a majority of starts, but it was a lot of starts, um, and he didn't get completely shellacked every single game, uh, he started much stronger than he finished, but he still performed very well and in relatively high workloads i've seen that team play quite a bit so i think he's in the top group of talent in this year's draft and if you can buy low on him you know and and at some point in the draft there's this like cost benefit analysis intersection of like well how much is how much risk do we have that this franchise goalie might not be a franchise goalie and if we pass on him 
what about who we pick instead? Like, what are they going to be? A second line winger? You know, do we rather take a chance on a guy that we think could slot in maybe as a top six guy? Or do we want to take a chance on a franchise goalie? And if we end up with a good backup and sign a better starter in five years and we have a great tandem, is that the end of the world? And so I don't know. That's a, that's a question where I think there's no wrong answer. Um, but I, to answer your question, he's, I think he's right up near at the top because no one has done what he's done. So one of the talking points I've seen around Wallstead is an interesting one, and this is kind of more of an apples-to-apples comparison because it's hard to compare a Wallstead to a Johnson because what they do on the ice is so vastly different. I've heard people say that of all the top goalie prospects in the last three years, so Wallstead, Askarov, Spencer Knight, Wallstead is the best of them. Do you fall in that camp, or is there one of the previous two that you liked a little more going into the draft? It's hard for me to say about Spencer Knight, but I do like Wallstead a lot more than what I was seeing of Askarov last year. And and Askarov was an interesting one for me to watch last year because I really did try to pay attention because I was I've always been the kind of person to be like I don't know anything about goaltending. I don't I just it's not my thing. Um and in this over this course of this season, I have spent some time watched Jesper Wallstead, watched other goaltenders who aren't on his level this year that are draft eligible and really tried to pick out what the differences between them are. And I've talked to people who are much more familiar with goaltending who can also illuminate on what they look for in a goalie and what separates guys like Wallstead from the rest of the pack and, and what it is. And with Wallstead, I mean, with Askarov, he is just a, you know, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me to see Askarov develop into like the modern day version of like a Dominic Hasek, where you have absolutely no idea how he's stopping the puck it makes no sense it it's completely ridiculous and asinine and sometimes he'll get lit up but when it works and if he can gain consistency and become the most athletic goalie on the planet then you might have yourself a really interesting goaltender on the other hand with Jesper Volstead there is much more of that traditional um Carey Price sort of Roberto Luongo kind of vibe to him where it's just extremely technical and extremely calculated and precise um you know he never wastes motion he's efficient and tracking rebounds and 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 snuffing rebounds out you know his big weakness according to where he was actually allowing goals this year was actually shots out from the blue line and so a lot of those things about tracking pucks through traffic and just sort of getting a better look at those those kinds of shot attempts can be a bit it seems to be a bit tricky for him at least to to my data and my eyeballs but when it comes to just dialing in, staying focused, staying efficient on his feet, tracking the puck, he's very good at it. Um, you know, some goalies shuffle their feet while they're standing in the crease. Some goalies, they, you know, when they go across, they go across the crease, they raise their knees off the ground and cheat a little bit, which can, you know, it's a game of inches, right? Like any little gap and the puck can get right through you. Whereas with Wallstead, it just feels like he just constantly is is thinking okay when the puck is in this situation here's how i take up the most amount of the net when the puck is in this situation here's how i can get into this position to take up the most of the net here you know it's just very precise and calculated that it's it's hard to articulate but when you see it you kind of know what you're seeing and i don't know again like if my goalie people were like no you're wrong don't touch this kid i'd go okay like fine whatever but I get the feeling that a lot of people think he's very good. I've spoken to some Swedish people I know who are like, he's the best goalie to come out of Sweden in like decades. And and people undervaluing him are just, 
misinterpreting what's going on there. And the only thing holding him back is like what's between his ears and just like the mental fortitude that it could take to be an NHL goaltender. But again, he's already in the SHL. Like he's checked that box in his career and some, some junior level goalies in Sweden struggle to check that box in the first place. So I, I think that removes a lot of uncertainty for me. So one question I love asking uh, anybody involved in the prospecting world, because whether it's through data, eyes, or a funny story, they always have their favorite guy in a draft outside of the top 10. So this year's consensus top 10 is a bit more up in the air because there's a lot of guys that could fill in there. But who's that guy for you that you don't see in the top 10 of most rankings that you hope jumps up for whatever reason, just because you're much higher on him than most or you know whatever story you have? Who is yeah. your crush in this draft? <laughs> top 10, I don't think I have one this year because I think the top 10 or 12 are just so on their own. I am still a big fan of Atu Ratu. I'm still a fan. I really think that there's a, a good player there. I think I've, I've been saying it for months. Like he's a player who I think needs a hug more than any other player here, like a reset mentally. Um, Scott Wheeler had a great piece about got diving into the challenges he's been having and and mentally what he's been going through this year and the expectations he's put on himself. But I mean, I, I've watched him play hockey a lot this year and I've seen some outstanding work from him. Um, even if he's not going to be uh, an 80 or 90 point, 30, 40 goal scoring center, I still think there's an excellent play driving guy there. And for a team like, say, the Detroit Red Wings, you plant Philip Zadina on his line and not only is, is Ratu a shooting threat, but if Ratu's job is just get the puck into the offensive zone and then find Philip Zadina, like that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing. And he's capable of doing that. He was a very efficient offensive transition player in my data. So he's one that I would bring up. But outside of that, like in the 10 to 15 range, there are guys that I really like that aren't, I don't think, getting as much attention as they should. Guys like Simon Robertson, I think, is a really interesting hockey player. Um, Logan Stankhoven is a guy who people just are undervaluing because he's five foot eight. But I honestly think that he is one of the most fundamentally talented players. Like in the data that I track, I only was able to do a couple of games of him because the sample is so small. But in every single WHL game I saw him play and at the under 18s, his his numbers are just off the charts. He's just unbelievable. Um, and, he, and, you know, there are weaknesses to his game. There's things that you're not going to get out of him. But as like a rambunctious offensive guy with energy and a great shot and, and playmaking on the side, if he's a guy that even if you're Detroit, again, with that second first round pick, you just pick him so no one else gets him in the in the at the in the middle of the or the mid mid to late first round. That's another one. Um, but those those guys, I would say, are the guys that I've really, really liked. Fyodor Svechkov is another one. But definitely, I'm a believer in Atu Ratu when it seems like less, fewer and fewer people are. And Simon Robertson and Logan Stankoven is just like no-nonsense offensive wingers. I, I, like, I like both of those guys. It seems a lot more than, than most people. All right. I'm going to ask a question that might be uh, asking a little bit too much of you. So if you want to change the conditions, I'll totally understand. But let's say the first two picks, you know, Owen Power to Buffalo, and let's say Seattle takes Beneers. Who would you rank as the next four players in order in terms of best case scenario for the Red Wings? You know, I think that's a weird way to phrase it. The Red Wings need centers and the Red Wings need left D and the Red Wings also need every other position, but those two no most notably. So I, I guess this is my sussing out your rankings. Who are the next four best players on the board if you're Steve Eisenman? Uh, I mean, 
I think William Eklund is a really good hockey player. And I think that you just, if you're drafting really high, don't overthink it and just take the really freaking good hockey players. And I think the Detroit Red Wings have done well drafting overall, but they still, like, a little bit more firepower down in the pipeline might not hurt them. And I think William Eklund brings a lot of really projectable all-around offense to his game. And he's no slouch defensively either, but he's more of an offensive player. So he would be the guy that I'm banking on at six. Um, I, f- I have Fabian LaSalle ranked extremely high, but I feel like if Detroit wants him, they can get him with the second first-round pick. Um, outside of that, I would say Ken Johnson would be on that list. Um Simon Edvinson, I'm a I'm a bit of a Simon Edvinson believer in terms of like again if we're talking like hitting the ceiling, he probably is the most defensively well refined defenseman of the group at the top end of the draft. I know people make fun of him for certain things. There are there are issues with him. His puck management is not great. Um, but you know what? Like the Detroit Red Wings drafted William Valinder last year, who was a player with very strong strengths and very very big weaknesses, and they're just sort of going, you know what? We're, we can work with this and figure it out. Um, and I think with, with Edvinson, there's another one where, like, if you want that left-hand shot defense, I've seen him do some pretty crazy stuff. It just doesn't come out very often. Um, but his defensive game is very well refined right now. So I'd be very curious to see where his game goes. Um, outside of that, I mean, I doubt Brant Clark is still there. I think Dylan Gunther, if by some chance he's there at six, could be another interesting option. Mason McTavish as well. So I guess... To order it, I'd probably say Eklund, Johnson, Edvinson, McTavish, Gunther, I would say. Something like that. And that would be my cross your fingers at six. Well, I just want to say uh, on my personal list, which I've I've released to our patrons, just uh, that I have William Eklund at number two and Logan Stankvin at 14. So thank you yeah. for justifying what is Good usually point. a big pile of idiocy. <laughs> so on that note, I'm going to get to... We're going to play a game where you get to call me an idiot as much as you want here. So I'm going to give you, uh, let's go three names, one at a time, of players that I am much higher on than the consensus I'm seeing out there. And I want you to tell me how right or how wrong I am. Now, since you've already mentioned Stankovin, which is going to be the first one, I'll, I'll skip past him and I'll go pick up another one here. So. Sasha Pastajov. I have him in the middle of my first round. He seems to be a late first, early second on most rankings I've seen. Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I crazy? Uh I would say crazy. Um I don't I don't think <laughs> I don't think you're right, but I can, I do not want to say you're wrong. Like you cannot argue with production. But with Pastajov, I've watched him a lot. I have watched him and tracked him a lot. And like, you're going to need a lot of development out of him, like a lot to project to the NHL. And I think that if he's a guy that someone wants in the first round, I'm happy to let them make that decision. I wouldn't. I think his skating, he he's going to get left behind in the NHL. When I tracked him a couple of games in, against NCAA competition, like teams even like Bowling Green University, he seemed to get mitigated significantly more uh, rather than against USHL competition. He's got very good smarts and very good skill under pressure, and there are things like he scores points somehow. So I'm not sitting here telling you he's bad, but I really struggle to see 
a player that is that deficient with such an important area of the game, which, you know, it, and it's not, he, he doesn't put in much defensively offensively. He just doesn't have a ton of pace. He kind of is a reactionary player, but he's very good at it. He's very good at reacting to pressure and, and finding little pockets of space and stuff, which is fine. But I just wonder how that projects. And I don't know. Um, he's in the middle of my second round. I think that in terms of a complementary scorer that you can play with a full bunch of bunch of guys who can zoom the puck up the ice and he just sort of finishes the job, maybe there's a there's a job for him in the NHL. On the power play, maybe there's a playmaker's job for him there as well. But I don't know. I think there's a lot of guys who I think have more projectable traits that that I would be way more comfortable picking. Okay, I'm happy you went crazy on the first one because it only gets weirder from here. Let's roll. All right. I have Vili Koivinen just inside of my first round. Yeah. 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 I'm all I'm all about it. I'm about the Vili Koivinen life. Uh I love that guy. He's he he's a guy who uh it was like the, <laughs> the I was watching Samu Tuomala play and I'm going, okay, like this guy's fun. He's he goes, but this other guy's scoring more. So let's check him out. And I'm going, okay, he's not super quick. He's not super skilled. How the hell is he scoring so many friggin' points? He's just really good. Like, he's just, it's it's hard to articulate beyond that. He just gets it. He he knows what the job, he knows what needs to be done. He's smart. He's effective. He plays really well as a functional unit of a team. He's selfless. But if he sees a chance, he'll take it. He just has a great feel for the game. And... I, I he's a guy who I've seen like in the third round. And I think that there's absolutely no possible way that that guy is that little, little of a prospect. I think there's, uh, he he's in my first round. He's sitting at 25 and I honestly really, really like him. Um, and the points, the points come from a place of actually projectable brains. He's got the brains. And I, I, I really, really like that about him. And if his skating can improve, which it probably should, if his skill can improve, which it probably should, the brain will just, it'll still be there. And I think that there's a lot to work with there. Well, I have met 27, so I'm, I'm happy you at least agree with me on he's, one. So I'm not he's crazy super, super underrated for sure. Like I get, I hate player comparisons, but I watch Koivinen and I get very Anton Lundell vibes. Not that he's that good, but just. Nothing stands out to you, but he's so efficient and effective at what he does. I'm going to stay in Finland for for my la- my third one. And this guy I have seen all over the place in rankings. And I'm a big fan of him. I have Samu Salmanen as a fringe first rounder. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've seen him a lot. Um, that guy is going to be a very interesting one. I get it. Again, another one of these guys scoring a lot of points. Uh I mean, look, if, if, if he, if he can, if he can get faster, like he doesn't generate a ton of speed at all. His, his game is basically just brute force bulldoze in a straight line against junior competition in in Finland. And to a certain extent, you can get away with that. He is very big. He is hard to knock off pucks. Um, you know, he, he attacks the net pretty well. But a lot of the data I've tracked on him, and I think I've done five or six games, so it's not like a, a small sample for me, um, you know. But I just I watch him play, and I go, okay, maybe there's a guy here that can, you know, I, I feel like he might struggle to keep up with professional level pace, 
Um, but that doesn't mean he can't. And I feel like if he gets stronger and faster, maybe that's a thing that, that can improve and big players, certainly down the middle, especially can be advantageous. Uh, I just can't help. I mean, and the data for some of his area in some areas of the game look pretty good. And so I can't really ignore that, but I just can't help but get a little skittish about him and feel like the point production is, is one thing, but, but becoming an NHL player We'll see. I mean, I'm not surprised that he's so polarizing. Um, and if you got, if you, if the guys on my scouting team really liked him in the second round, fine. Like if he's the second or third guy you're picking, and you've got, I mean, if you're Detroit and you've got three second round picks, sure, take a chance on him. Um, but I don't know. He's he's a guy with good data that gives me a bit of the heebie-jeebies. You know, that makes sense. Obviously, I always normally I shy away from big players in junior who put up huge production because for the exact reasons you mentioned, but his skill and particularly his shot really interests me because guys that size don't shoot like that with that accuracy all that often. So that that's the big reason why I've been high on him. And obviously skating needs to be improved or he could, or he has to turn into Ryan gets left and who knows what'll right. happen there. Right. All right. So those are my three that are way out there. Ryan, I will, let you take over here. So I, I'm thinking about Detroit's second first round pick here. And, you know, the obvious answer to the obvious question of um, what's best case scenario for their second first round pick, it's whoever shouldn't have fallen, right? Like if in a crazy world, Owen Power is there at 23rd overall, <laughs> <laughs> you do it. Right. But let's let's try to give ourselves some constraints here. Let's say plus or minus five to seven picks from 22 in your rankings who do you think would be the biggest haul for detroit with that pick Hmm. if you want to add this to context of who you you think they'll take with their first pick by all means go ahead but is there a guy outside of someone huge falling that detroit fans should be over the moon for with the 23rd overall pick so plus or minus five uh on my list around 23 was it you said uh yeah it's the 22nd player picked but it's 23rd overall because right arizona right um yeah i mean so that bleeds into the end of my third tier so i mean my third tier is Fyodor Svechkov, simon robertson logan stankoven isaac rosen cole sillinger and matthew coronado and i mean if if it's uh if it's a Cole Sillinger, I think that would make a lot of sense. It's a low if if he's there at twenty three, I'd be surprised, but it's possible. And he's kind of up that Zadina alley of just like you're getting a goal like a shooter and just a guy who can just plow the puck into the net. If that's what you want, I mean he's a bit physical too, but if that's what you want, that might be a guy that if he's available, you might push for. Matthew Coronado is a guy who I didn't really appreciate fully until I really watched him a lot. And I, I think, you know, he's up high on my board now because he just consistently has, I think, gotten better over the course of the season. And the numbers that I've tracked on him are really impressive in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot to like with him, but I wouldn't like if he was the guy at 23, I don't think he's a player that's going to be tremendously exciting for the for the Red Wings. I think he's going to, you know, he has played center. So if that that could fill that hole um, and I think he's he could be a center. I think he's smart enough to do it. If, if his skating improves a little bit over the next little while, I think he could get there. He's another one with a really good brain for the game. Um, good, 
good first step of skill. Not the most skilled guy, but he can evade a layer of pressure, a layer, a layer or two of, of pressure. He's strong enough to get through. Uh, you know, he'll he'll try to split the D and and put his head down and and just try to bulldoze through guys. And he's not the biggest dude. Uh, he's a hard worker. He earns everything he gets, but he's not. He's not a guy who I think in the NHL will just take over a shift and he's going to be a massive steal. But I think it would be a rock-solid pick there, especially if it's, say, like a William Eklund at the high end of the draft or something. And you kind of offset that with like, all right, maybe a bit more of a complete, well-rounded guy. Um, not that Eklund is not that, but, you know, maybe we'll go in that direction. But, I mean, I'm pretty sure that there are guys that are higher than this on my list that will be available there, like Fabian LaSalle. At 23 sounds entirely reasonable, and if I'm Steve Eisenman, I'm not scared of that at all. And I think that if that works out, you look like an absolute genius, because I think he's a tremendous player. Um, if Atu Ratu's available, another one where you can work with that. Uh, and, you know, Logan Stankhoven. You might even be able to get him with your first second round pick, but, you know, you got that pick for the in the that massive deal for Anthony Mantha, so like... <laughs> Take your take the swing on whoever you want, and if you whiff, whatever. And and I think there's a few guys where it's worth just over like you might overshoot on where you might be able to get Stankoven and really nail like draft pick value. But I like him enough where you just make the pick and just make it so no one else can pick him up. Um, but of the guys in that range of my of my list, guys like Sillinger and Coronado are reasonable expectations that I would be kind of excited about. I love it when you rank pick guys that are higher than 22 on my list. It makes me feel like I know what I'm doing, even though I don't. <laughs> All right. So let's keep going down the path here. Obviously, Steve Eisenman has accumulated every pick in the draft, so we should yes. probably talk about a little more depth here. Three second-round picks is probably what's going to make or break this draft for Detroit, honestly, because we, we know – for the most part, what to expect at six. We know how late first round picks generally go. Three second round picks. If you hit one home run there, it's an amazing draft. That's we we know how the odds work on that. So who are your guys that you focus in on that you think are going in that range that are underappreciated, that are you think are really good and are gonna fall for whatever reason it might be? Well, Vili Koivinen is one. You like you've got thirty-eight, forty-eight, fifty-two, and if I'm the Detroit Red Wings, like at thirty-eight, a guy like William Strumgren, I think makes a ton of sense. He plays for the same team as William Valinder, played really, really well on the same team. They're not afraid of a guy like William Valinder with Strumgren. There's a ton. I think there's a ton of upside when he he his only thing is inconsistency. When he's on and and really dialed in against pro competition. He's tremendous, and there's not very many big, you know, he's 6'2", 6'3", but kind of wiry, but he's really skilled and quick on his feet for a guy that big, and I think that that's pretty rare in this year's draft class, and at 38, like, for the Detroit Red Wings specifically, like, I feel like Strumgren is on their list, and it would make a ton of sense. Um, another guy in that range that I would be really interested to see in a, in a Red Wings jersey is Dylan Duke. I really like that guy. He's a bit small, but he's rambunctious and works hard. And he's one of the best generators of shot attempts from in front of the net that I've tracked. Um, you know that he, he's just a, a bulldog. And I, 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 I like those guys. Um, you know, if you want to maybe go for a defenseman, maybe Brent Johnson or an Olin Zellweger could be a really interesting pickup for, for the Detroit Red Wings in there. You might even be able to get Zellweger later than this. You know, not a lot of people are really paying a ton of attention to him. Um, and he's small. So that also does him does him dirty. 
Uh, Alexi Hamasalmi is another one that had a really good under-18 tournament and has been good at the finish under-20 level this year, from my view. And if you're talking, you know, like if you're talking 38, 48, 52, and those picks are, say, Strunggren, Brent Johnson, and Alexi Hamasalmi, and your first picks are William Eklund and Fabian LaSalle because people are scared of LaSalle, I think that's an absolute home run of of a few different guys that are available. There's a lot of guys, I think, though, like in that range of the draft, like between the late first through to the mid second that I think are really interesting. And if you can get as many of of the guys in that range as you can, um, I I think you could hit on at least one of them. It's a very weird landscape for this year's draft, for sure. But that's a really interesting area of the draft. One thing you mentioned there that I'm going to kind of Go on a tangent and ask about, um, obviously you said, mentioned Hamil Selmy had a really strong U18. Alton Zellweger had a really strong U18. I've noticed in most lists I've reading that all the guys who had one strong tournament really shot up lists, not necessarily because of that tournament, maybe just cemented people's opinions on them, but McTavish started going up after that draft. Othman started going up and a bunch of players from other countries. How much do you think that one tournament impacted the draft this year, given all the circumstances of the pandemic? I think for a lot of people, it impacted it a lot. I, I, I think that a lot of people saw it as like the opportunity for a bit of normalcy in their world. Like for me, the video stuff is normal. Like all I do is watch video and, and there's obviously issues with that, but you get a decent enough picture and the data also paints a picture that's much more concrete than what you're seeing on video. Um, and with, you know, for the way I viewed, uh, guys like this, the under 18s, like for Olin Zellweger, it wasn't really about the under 18s for me. Like I wasn't, I, I was kind of surprised at how, how comfortable he was there, but watching him in the WHL over time, it was just like every game, he just kind of kept bumping up and bumping up a little bit. And next thing you know, he's in my, he's in my thirties. Um, you know, Alexi Hamasami is a guy who I caught watching a teammate of his, and I was wondering who this really good skating defenseman was. And I, you know, going into the under 18s, I thought, okay, I have this guy at the tail end of my second round because I'm still not sure, you know, his, his offensive game could be a lot better than it is. And he kind of doesn't handle the puck super well. And, and he's kind of unreliable in that area. And that's a, that's a problem for me, especially for a guy who's not super, super big. And, uh, but when I saw him at the under 18s, it was like, oh, okay. Like, yes, he has these kind of issues, but he's still really good. And like, now that he's outside of his comfort zone and put onto a national team and against good competition, he not only doesn't look out of place, he was one of the best players in that. It wasn't the best defenseman at the tournament. He won best defender. Um, and, and that was something that even I didn't expect. So to me, it's like, okay, well, that's the importance of mobility and skill. And he did have some some highlight reel moments. Um, there's a lot of guys who I think they they showed me that I shouldn't be so concerned about them. You know, guys like Dmitry Kuzman on the Belarusian team showed me that he he has the skill and mobility to make it work against good junior talent right now. And that makes sense. I mean, he's been playing pro hockey in Belarus, but again, that's pro hockey in Belarus. So I didn't really go into that tournament and go, this the, the coming out my list is going to look completely different because this is important but it was like okay these guys are being tested and i want to see how they react because i'm still a bit on the fence about them one way or the other with mason mctavish i mean i think with him i think scouts in this year's draft are kind of looking for certainty and i think with with mctavish 
I don't think he's a top-line guy. I think he could play on a power play. Maybe in your middle six, he can play center, which is nice. And he's physical and rambunctious, and there isn't a whole lot of that. He's got some grind to his game, and once NHL scouts see that, especially after having so much time without seeing things like that in person, especially out of Canadian prospects and getting no OHL hockey, uh, they see that and they go, oh my god, this guy's incredible, we gotta get him. And he ends up being a top-five guy when he might be more like a... 7 to 12 kind of pick for me um but it, it that's just kind of how i read of it for me that that tournament was a lot more about confirming issues or 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 saying not to worry so much about those issues and going from there so we're going to start you know closing this conversation out with some more broad strokes topic just like we started one of the most difficult questions to answer in terms of prospects is is a centerman going to play center in the NHL so of the names who are even loosely associated with, with the center position here, Kent Johnson, uh, Beniers, Chaz Lucius, William Eklund, Sillinger, McTavish, Atu Ratu, are there guys in there who you project to more likely than not play center? And the second part to that question is, if you're Steve Eisman and you have no one really besides Larkin as a defined top-end center in your system, do they move up your list for that reason? Uh, I mean, if I'm putting on my Steve Eiserman hat, it's tempting. Um, I do think that at the later pick in the first round, you're going to have a more realistic choice of potential centers. Maybe that implies that the guys that we're talking about might leapfrog wingers, potentially. You know, I'm looking at my list and going, you know, Chaz Lucius, I've got him at 21. Is he going to be there at 23 for the Red Wings? Almost certainly not. Would I take him at 6? No. Uh, someone might, but I wouldn't. Uh, I, I look at this and go, uh, you know, the guys I think that will play center in the NHL could be Mason McTavish. I think Atu Ratu could be a center. Uh, who else? Fyodor Svechkov should be a center in the NHL, I think. Matthew Coronado, I think, has the talent to do it. He's listed as a winger, but he played center more and more as the year went on from from my viewings. Uh, who else is here? Sam Eskevich, I don't think he would project as a center. I think Ken Johnson projects as a winger. Um, who else is on here? Uh, Borgo has pretty much played wing every single time I've seen him play. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a tough one because, you know, guys will also, teams will look for centers. They'll, they'll draft them and, and those guys will leapfrog for sure. Uh, but I think that you could still, I think it's more realistic to say maybe a Fyodor Svechkov will be available at 23 and he's been playing center and he looks really good doing it. He's one of the better two way players that I've tracked this year. Um, there's other names that you, you could maybe just buy low on like a Matthew Coronado and see what happens there. Uh, but in terms of, you know, real bona fide guys that you can definitely project down the middle, especially at that sixth overall pick, I have a hard time doing that unless you want to really reach deep and pick a guy like a, a Chaz Lucius. And even then I have questions about him potentially being a center, unless a lot of the issues I was seeing this year stemmed from just him coming back from injury, which I don't know. It'll it, it's going to be a weird draft to look back on for sure, one way or the other. Um, but I think at 23 is when you can sort of say, well, some of these guys that are on the board could or do already play center, especially if a guy like Ratu slips to that point. All right, we have one more question for you, and I've been excited to ask you this question because one, prospecting is weird. It's an, an exact science, and nobody knows what they're doing. But you have a very unique perspective on it because you're one of the very few, if not the only prominent prospectors out there 
who really dives deep into the analytics, but also watches a lot of video. So you have the eye test and the analytics covered really well. So to you, based on the data and what you've seen, who is the most confusing prospect in this draft where either the, where the eyes don't line up with the data? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to twist the question a little bit, a little bit. And I'm going to say that Owen Power is the most perplexing case study relative to from what I've been seeing and tracking and what literally what feels like every other human being on the planet is saying about him. And it's to the point where I'm sticking, like I filmed the Owen Power report yesterday. It's going to come out next month. It, I, I'm sticking my my flag in the ground that there is a really major mismatch between what people are saying about him and what they are seeing in him, and what I am seeing in both the video and the data. Sometimes there are players where the data looks really good and it makes me sketchy. Guys like Samu Salmanen, for example, but. In other situations, it's vice versa, where the video, I think, looks great. And this player is just not, they don't, they might not have a feel for the game quite yet. They might be playing professional hockey for the first time, and it might not be quite, quite all put together yet. Guys like Simon Robertson are like that, where there's a little bit, you know, the, the data is still good with him, but it's not fantastic. But you watch the video, and, and I think there's a lot to, to write home about. Um, but with Owen Power, I, I've seen a lot of issues that I think that for defensemen, like, you really don't want to see. And yes, maybe he can grow and mature, but there aren't that many other defensemen that I have as many issues with at the top end of this draft. I mean, like I've got him at at six, so it's not like I think he's terrible, but he's not number one to me. I wouldn't pick him number one. I wouldn't pick him number two. I probably wouldn't pick him number three unless you really think there's something there. And, And what I've been reading about what people are saying about him it some of it just doesn't line up with what I think is is actually happening there, and also some uh, some other bits of it sound like they're they they don't think he should be number one, but he is right. Like it's like they he won't score a ton of points. He might be a, a top four minutes eater that you just throw over the boards and, and eat minutes. It's like well, great. Like are you going to use a first overall pick on that type of player, right? And and based on what I've been seeing in the NHL, I mean there are defensemen that play like Owen Power does right now. And a lot of them are, according to analytics people, like the butt end of jokes. And there's a lot of analytics with Owen Power that are not particularly fair. He's not a dominant NCAA defenseman. He's just not. I don't. I don't know. The results aren't there. There's a lot of things that he's not involved. He's he's got great transition ability, but he's one of the lowest involved transition defenders I've tracked. He relinquishes defensive entries constantly and just doesn't even get involved. He'll just use his reach and stick his arm out, and you know he's six foot six, so that that matters. But fast guys will just go right around him and just say thanks very much for the for the offensive zone. I'm gonna cut right around you and make a play. And I mean, he was okay at the World Championship. That's that's fine and dandy. But I I don't know. I just see it's troubling because I see a lot of people penciling him in as the Buffalo Sabers' next big thing, and he's gonna be a rock on that defense group for the next ten years. And I'm sitting there going like. Well, maybe if he goes to Michigan for another year, and and maybe if he gets some AHL time after that, and maybe if he develops XYZ over the next couple of years. But if your expectation is for the Buffalo Sabres to just draft him first overall, put him out opening night, and and you know the team's all better without Jack Eichel and Sam Reinhart, or at least a step in the right direction, you kind of lose me a little bit. That's really scary to me, and that mismatch is 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 very wide, and it's so wide that. It's making me question my own work where I'm going, 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm, but but I, like you said, like I combine video and data, and with him, there's alarming things in both. And it's not, especially for a guy that could be going first overall. Well, uh, the confounding worn out part of your brain, like we mentioned before, has just a month to go. Yeah. Uh, everyone, this has been uh, Will Scouch of Scouching. Uh, find him on the, with that same handle on Twitter, youtube.com slash scouching. Uh, really great resource. Good friend of the pod. Will, thank you so much for joining the show and uh, best of luck for the next month. Oh, you're so welcome. Best of luck in the draft. And that was our interview with Will Scouch. Um, lots of prospect talk in there. A lot of really interesting takes. And it's, you know, we're going to continue to have people on in advance of the draft. It's very curious to see where people fall. There's no one conventional school of thought, I find, when, where someone has like one opinion on Wallstead and the same opinion, you know, that aligns with the Wallstead people on Eklund or the same opinion on Kent Johnson. Like, there's so much variance. We were talking pre-show, Brad, with with uh, Will, and he agrees. I think this year's draft is going to be nutty in terms of like people's expectations and what's actually going to happen. We've been predicting it for a year, so shouldn't be surprised that it's shaping up that way. I mean, there's been so many risers, especially from the U18s all the way into the top ten. I have, I have no idea what to expect, and. Honestly, from an entertainment value, I love it. All right. We are going to jump into overtime here. Uh, overtime in this midweek episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast is Patreon exclusive. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. And hey, if you don't follow us on Twitter, uh, follow us on Twitter. We're kind of close to 7,000. Twitter.com slash winged wheel pod. Do that. Uh, Obier Juan Kenobi says Vancouver fans uh, think that they can acquire Sam Reinhart with their ninth overall pick. I don't know how they plan on paying him, but could there be a way the Red Wings could bring in Reinhardt, another twenty four, uh, another 2014 first rounder who could play well behind or even in front of Dylan Larkin? He doesn't get a lot of love in Buffalo, but he's a true power play threat playing the bumper, and I don't see us getting a player of that caliber out of this draft anyways. He's good, not elite, probably pr- asking price is going to be too high. And he's right on the border of what age the cutoff is for the Red Wings when they're looking to acquire players right now. Because if you think the Red Wings come out of this pretty quickly, he could contribute uh, in a couple playoff runs. But I feel like that's being pretty optimistic. So if, if we're talking about we're not certain Bertuzzi and Verana are going to see this through, I don't think Reinhardt makes a lot of sense then. Uh, Reed says, uh, I know you guys have answered this before, but how did you three boys end up rooting for the Red Wings as a Kitchener born Portland raised hockey fan? Uh, I might have the dumbest answer of all. As a kid, I played free demos for NHL 97 and 98, and the Wings were one of the only two playable teams. Before long, I had that classic roster memorized and decided to make them my team when I became a hockey fan in earnest. Little did I know this lifelong obsession I'd embarked on. Love you guys, even Brad. So I'm from Windsor, right? Like, you know, I could see Joe Louis Arena from across the river, which was, you know, down the road from my house. Uh, Windsor's mostly split between Toronto and Detroit fans, occasionally Montreal. You guys are the ones who are, you know, you just chose well, pretty much. I honestly wish I could remember why I started cheering for the Red Wings. I I was too young to remember. I have absolutely no clue. 
I was a Lidstrom fan. That was yeah. uh, the genesis for me. And basically the Red Wings Colorado rivalry was at its absolute peak in the 90s, so that didn't hurt either. Vincent Saladino says, uh, it feels like every team the Canadians are playing are playing scared. Since Game 7 against Toronto, every team they play seems like they don't have their heart in it, especially for Winnipeg, who after Game 1 looked like they'd already accepted losing. Now with Vegas, they can't consistently get things going. Do you think it's a psychology thing, or does it have to do with Montreal's systems and coaching? Dom Ducharme deserves credit here, for sure. Um, He's done well with the roster he has, and you know what? It's easy to underplay this roster, but as Brad mentioned early in the show, there is merit to the way they're constructed. Not where if you replay the season 10 times out of 10, they make the playoffs. No, I agree. They don't. But there is merit to the way the roster is constructed. That said, I think a lot of this is psychological. Teams are just getting in their own heads about Montreal. They're getting their own heads about Carey Price. I don't really see teams challenging Carey Price like they should be. If you crack that wall, it all comes down with Montreal and no one's really even come close with price. And that's, again, credit to price, but I think a lot of it is psychological. It has to be systems because if you're so spooked by Carey Price, you probably wouldn't want to live by point shots. Um, what was it game four that Vegas won in Montreal in overtime? That Nick Waugh overtime goal was their first shot from within the slot the entire game, and it came in overtime. Like, Montreal was just not giving them anything. Now, part of that's Vegas not being aggressive enough, but literally zero shots from a high-danger area. Zero for a 60-minute playoff game? That's not just in your head. That's Montreal just absolutely selling out defensively. Um, all right. Next question here is from Aaron Hudson says, Hey boys, dictate the, how the draft goes. You can't show any Red Wings bias. Your only job is to create the most chaos imaginable. Most chaos imaginable. First two picks are goalies. And the first one is Kosa, not Wallstedt. <laughs> I don't care what happens <laughs> after that. So in a realistic scenario, the first overall pick is Beneers. Power would then go second because I don't think anything crazier than that's happened. Uh, one of the next three teams reaches for a center. So let's say McTavish goes three to the Ducks. The Devils take anybody but a Hughes. And then Chaz Lucius goes to Columbus because they reach for a center as well. That would be maximum chaos. That is at least somewhat in the realm of possibility. Eric Potts says, hey, boys, uh, I try to think of goalies in the NHL draft like QBs in the NFL, where only certain teams are in a position to draft one within the first 60 or so picks. It seems unlikely this season, but in the event where Wallstedt were to slip to the 20s, would you feel comfortable spending the capital to select him at 22? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. A thousand percent. I would be perfectly comfortable even taking Kosa there. Uh, Sean Chavarella says, Hey guys, I think you'd all agree. Flurry is a hall of fame goalie, but I would say the arguments against Osgood could also be said against flurry. Do you admit Osgood and flurry should be in the hall of fame or do you stick to the guns that neither should be in? Also, if flurry chokes the series away, should we look at him as the modern Osgood? I lean towards the camp of neither. Um, this year, I think is the first Vesna nominee 
nomination for Flurry. The wins are nice, but he spent his entire career on stacked teams outside of his like first couple seasons. So very similar to Osgood. I mean, it's the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Very Good. And Mark Andre Flurry would be a first ballot Hall of Very Good. Flurry's getting in no matter what. He's that's just where he's at in the hockey. I don't know lore right now. The the throws of his career, the up and downs. Like at his height, he was playing great hockey on a team that featured Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. He went to Vegas and was the feature of that team as well. There's no way he's not getting in. If Osgood doesn't Zero get in, all the nominees. Yeah, Zero they're not going to the care. Nominees. I guarantee. You I know they won't. Flurry's yeah. Flurry's getting in because of his likability factor. Like whether people want to admit it or not, his, his wins, his cups, even though he wasn't the starter for two of his three cups, that's all people will look at. Yeah. Uh, Cody Stark says, just finishing up week two of goalie camp. Will someone rub some cream on my godforsaken blistered ankles? My wife is too pregnant to do it for me. Also, Brad should be receiving a gift from my food division. Starko's spices tomorrow. Have a good one, boys. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I'm concerned. Connor Leighton says, Hey fellows, it looks like I'll be moving down to Grand Rapids over the weekend of the draft. We'll be trying to get text updates of the first round while driving uh, and moving furniture in between Red Wings picks. What's your best draft story where you weren't able to watch it live? Um, <laughs> it's definitely, and you note it here, Connor. Uh, it's definitely when I couldn't watch the draft the years Adina was taken and I was at a wedding FaceTiming Brad. Absolutely, that was the case. Um, and regarding the acrylic pins, apparently they're incredibly difficult to mail. I don't know. So we have to wait to send a big batch of things at once so you don't get just a little pin and a dinky thing. We're going to send you some more stuff. Uh, English Major says, am I missing something with Kent Johnson because I don't get all the hype? I heard he has poor decision making, just okay compete, okay skating, but good skill. I see tons of people wanting him and I just don't see it. I see people saying he'll be a center, but I think Eklund is closer to a true center. What am I missing here? Thanks in advance, BJ. Yeah, he, he simplified that way too much because his compete is good. It's not bad. I agree. He's, he's a winger, not a center. Um, but it's not just that he has skill. He has the most skill of anybody in this draft. Like if we're just talking purely talent, Kent Johnson would be the first overall pick in this draft. It is ridiculous what he can do on the ice. His biggest knock is he's tiny for his size. Like he needs six summers in the weight room without taking a nap. Like, and yeah, there's some issues with decision-making and all that, but I think those are a little overblown. He doesn't have the high, high hockey IQ that like a William Eklund does. And he doesn't have the skating of a William Eklund, but he has more skill than a William Eklund just for comparison's sake. So yeah, it's easy to look at the deficiencies and go, but yeah, he has skill. Let's be clear. He has the most skill. Uh, Darren Ficarelli says, if McTavish is the pick at six, is it too much of a reach to take Oscar Olison at 23? I feel like there's less talk about him than most other guys in that range. I don't think he makes it to 38 while Svechkov might. But could there be better value at 23? Do I just love zone entries too much? 
And I think you've got that flipped. I think there's a better chance Olison makes it to 38 than Svechkov just because of the positional premium. I mean, I like Olison. Uh, I'm not an Oscar Olison truther. Just pulling up my rankings here real quick. Yeah, I've got him not too far behind Detroit's pick at 23, so it would be perfectly reasonable in my mind. Uh, Mohit Sider says if the U.S.-Canada border opens this summer, any chance of a winged wheel podcast meetup at a game next season? Stay tuned on that. That's all we'll say. Uh, also, have you watched the new Bo Burnham comedy special on Netflix? Yes, it is incredible. I have not stopped listening to the soundtrack. Please watch it. Uh, depressing millennial humor, and I love ab- absolutely every second of it. I recommend it to anyone that's been locked up in their house for the last year and a half. Ruthless and Toothless says, we're always referring to Tampa when looking at Stevie Y, rightfully so. As Wings fans, does it worry us that Tampa, while a great team, are perennial playoff underachievers? You could easily argue that Tampa at this point could have three, maybe four cups if you're grading it based on talent. Do we have any reservation uh, that we could put together a team like that? Quick point here. It's incredibly hard to win the Stanley Cup. There's so Look at what's going on in these playoffs. There's so much luck involved. You need to basically put out your best like effort out there and then just hope you don't get boned by Lady Luck, which you mostly do. The Tampa should have had multiple cups before they have where literally their starting goalie gets injured in the cup finals. Their leading scorer breaks his wrist in the cup finals. Uh, another year, their starting goalie gets injured in the conference finals. Like It's one thing to have injuries, but it's another thing to have injuries to your most important players. And they won a cup with their captain playing like two minutes the entire playoffs. So yeah, for as much as we rip on Tampa, they have had a lot go wrong for them and still got a cup out of it. And let's not forget, there's 31 teams to win one. You're supposed to win one every 31 years. Like it's not easy. Colorado 14ers and, and Ruth listen to this. You are right in saying it's all about perspective. Colorado 14ers says, uh, watching this Vegas Montreal series is giving me flashbacks to the wings Oilers series in 06. All too often we equate most talent with best team, despite all the evidence we get to the contrary on a yearly basis. I hated seeing Eisman's career end the way it did against Edmonton and will never say that he failed his team as a leader. However, the big boys on Vegas have failed to step up to the plate with respect to leadership. Uh, if the Knights aren't able to pull this out, I have a hard time believing they'll have a shot at getting back to the finals anytime soon. Josh Terrell says, for the record, if, Ken Dan- if the Ken Daniels interview occurred during quarantine, his response would have been, holy shit, Brad, you look just like Lionel Messi. You kind of do, Brad. A little bit. Fuck. I don't see like- that at all. Really? Neither do I. They're both short. We're both as hell. short and have dark brown hair and like the same length hair. I think that's where I don't it see it at all. I would love to see Brad playing soccer though. The difference that wasn't bad back in the day. Like for a guy who didn't play in an organized lead, I could hold my weight with the guys who did. I'm not good, but like okay. I wouldn't embarrass myself out there. It's not like Shea Weber vibes for Evan though. Like that's doppelganger status. <laughs> Uh, Matt S says, um, the question last episode regarding your best live memory as a kid, I remembered being at a game that Eisman went end to end against Toronto and scored, but my favorite in game memory was, uh, against Calgary in 2010 where Datsuk and Zetterberg tied it with five seconds left. And then Lidstrom won it in OT with a deep goal. The Joe went nuts. Best overall memory was the last game at the Joe. Didn't want that night at 10. 
Was there a time you watched a big game during an event you probably shouldn't have been watching hockey at? I watched the 2016 Stadium Series game versus Colorado at a wedding reception. Luckily, the bride and groom were fans too and kept asking the score. Keep up the good work as always, Dub Dubs. Can't wait to hopefully attend a game with you three soon. So I obviously given that, you know, we started a podcast, I have not missed any significant Red Wings games. I've got two very, very quick ones. I missed the first two periods of the O2 shit kicking of Colorado because and like I'm not lying here. I was on the first date of my life. So, you know, when you're in grade nine. Girls take priority over sports. Um, but the funnier one that I have is not that the Red Wings had any vested interest in it, but I was at my wife's work party and I was live streaming the McDavid draft lottery. And literally it was me surrounded by, I think, every husband and boyfriend in this room of like 500 people just finding out where McDavid was going. Nobody gave a shit about what was actually happening there outside of that lottery. Uh, Nick uh, Geyer says, I just want to say I'm going to bet against Montreal all the way up to them raising the cup over their heads. I will die on this hill. The sad, lonely, money losing hill. Tampa in six, please. Fancy Rowan says, good day to you gentlemen. Uh, again, by the insistence of my moral composition and my magnanimous inclination, I, oh my God, jeez. I, Fancy Rowan, write to you, write you to correct and to educate. In recent episodes of this very program, you have wandered like lost children into discussion on whom the Red Wings should protect in the upcoming expansion draft. At no point was mention made uh, to both sign and protect one Darren Archibald Helm. Retaining Darren's services for the next eight years is of utmost importance to the Red Wings' future. Teams expect to be ready for contention within three to five years, which would align perfectly with Mr. Helm entering the prime of his late 30s. Without him, this team will be ready for a little more than springtime golf or scrapbooking or any manner of frivolity appealing to the common dandy. I fear, I fear this is more than a simple oversight. This is a clumsy attempt at conspiracy uh, with the scent and is lousy with the scent of Constable Robert. You're all exposed. A lot of words. Garment time. Rank the following uh, from best to worst. Black 1991 Pavel Burry spaghetti skate jersey. B. Spats. What's Spats? C. Uh, 1990 Brandon Shanahan New Jersey Devils green shoulder jersey. And D. A 2021 Mort Sider game worn Rogla jersey. Oh man. Um. I'm a sucker for the Shanahan green jersey. What is... I don't know what Spats is. I know I'm not big on the spaghetti. St. Pat's? Oh. Oh. I get it now. St. Pat's fourth. Uh, Moritz Sider game one rogue. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a fine jersey, but against the other three presented there. I, I mean, Saint- the Rogla jersey has to go fourth just because of the ads. Yeah. Ah, I'll go. So best of worst, I will go. Bure Shanahan, Spats, Rogla. I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as always, remain unspoiled. Oh my god, you guys are a lot. I don't even know if this is actually Rowan. Um, 
Number one, Steve Ott fan says, I'm not normally one to poke the bear, but after hearing Brad get mad because I said the Habs were cup contenders and all the wings had to do to also become cup contenders was to draft Wallstedt and continue to lose most of their games. I feel like I know exactly where Brad Marchand's hand wa- head was uh, before he licked Ryan Callahan's face. He made a valid point that there's a different goalie ranked above Wallstedt on one reporter's ranking, so I think it's only fair that we restart the Wallstedt debate but center it around Kosa. Uh my obvious question is, with the sixth overall pick, would you use it to trade for world-class pest Matthew Kachuk, who is rumored to be available? He fits the timeline, and I really don't think any skater from this draft would have the impact that he would make on the wings. That is a good question. Man, that's tough. I, I would consider it. There's a lot of players in this draft that I think could get to Matthew Kachuk's level. Not necessarily better, or but but close. I I think there's maybe one forward I think could could have a bigger impact than Kachuk, and then you have to factor in all these guys are five or six years younger. I mm, I don't think I'd do it. I think I just I'd take the gamble. Evan's bingo card since says since my golf game. Uh, welcome back to the conversation. Evan seems to have fallen off uh, the already really low level. I have a question for you guys since neither of these ha- ever happened to me. What feels better, hitting a drive down the middle of the fairway or splashing one out of the greenside bunker to within three feet of the hole? Oh, for me, it's bunker. I love a sick bunker shot. No, man, an absolute piss missile off the tee a hundred out of a hundred times. It's It's the only part of golf I actually enjoy. I'd say nutting your first drive in a tournament. That's the biggest energy because everybody is up there with the biggest Bambi legs, can't even address the ball. If you just go up there and rip one right down the middle, not only does it make you feel like you got the biggest dick on the course, it makes the guys who have to hit after you even more terrified. Yeah, I don't hit the fairway, so good to know. Follow-up question, Evan, have you ever actually done that? Yes, I did that my first round at Whistle Bear this year. It wasn't in a tournament, but I just I crushed a drive with three guys I'd never played with before. And there was some nervous energy after that from them. Uh, question for Brad in specific. Have you tried any of the Hyperlite gear? Um, I've tried on the skates. Obviously, didn't skate. Uh, couldn't skate with them. Super comfy skates. Uh, toe box was a little big. Do not like the new tongue. Um, really like the flex. I forget what they're called. The new lace system they have there to help with forward flex. Big fan. Um, I wear vapor gloves like the most recent ones. The two X pros love them. Um, my favorite gloves that ever existed. I've held the stick, but we've only got a demo so far, so I'm not allowed to shoot it yet because it's for display. But uh, I really do like the feel and the balance of it. So optimistic. Plus, I'm, I mean, I'm using two fly lights now, so I, I assume I'm going to like the hyperlight. Uh, Lars, the prophet of the towering behemoth, says greetings from the land of Euro 2020 group winners, Sweden. We play Ukraine in the first game in the knockout stages. As you surely know, uh, now Sweden plays the game in the Brazilian mold of uh, Yoga Benito, the beautiful game. Onwards and upwards, wings and pizza for everyone. You tried to trick me there. Dylan K says, I feel like I should point out from last week's comment that all of my herb delivery is perfectly legal and sanctioned by the great state of redacted. Uh, question, albeit a pointless one, is there anything, uh, anyone you can see Eisman reaching for at six a la Mo Sider back in 2019? 
would we consider Mason McTavish that much of a reach? Because I the, the, he's a center. People are going to like him. I think he's in. No, I think he's in range. We're talking somewhat like you were. I'm I'm thinking like Svechkov at six would be most cider. So my thoughts on that would be: I think Eiserman would put a lot of trust. Uh, more trust in Hakan Anderson than just about anybody in the entire scouting department right now. So if they're going to reach, it probably would be for a European player that they have really, really high hopes on. So could they reach for a Fabian LaSalle? I could see it. Aturati, maybe. Obviously, I don't think Wallstedt would be considered a reach, but that could happen. Beyond that, I don't see anybody that I think they would reach for at six that would very likely be available at 23. And last question here. Uh, fanciest Rowan says, good day, Dud, Duddle, Duddles. Uh, it's I even fancier than before Rowan here to echo the why sentiments listed earlier by my co-conspirator and all around good guy, Fancy Rowan. I do believe the reason you, uh, including probationary constable Robert, who goes by the uncouth nickname of BJ, have neglected to include Darren Helm in your protected list is because he is what we in the business refer to as a UFA. This is some astute planning by uh, Mr. Eisenman, who continues to display an otherworldly level of shrewdness. Um, I, for one, welcome this news post the Seattle inferior cephalopods taking one of our lesser valued players in the aforementioned expansion draft. In today's second discussion about hockey sweaters, I pose this question. Which Team Canada sweater was the most interesting and therefore what the youths would refer to as cool? Please assign them ranked in order from one to four. Green World Junior jersey, gold Winnipeg Falcons jersey, 1987 Canada Cup jersey with the half maple leaf just slapped on the front, 1948 Olympic gold medal sweaters. Ooh, I'm trying to remember the 1948 Olympic gold medal jersey canada um those so ones the are the 87s blue ones. Are, so the 87 ones are number one hands down no debate 100 percent uh the 2004s are probably number two those gold ones were sharp uh i'll go with the 48s and then i do not like the green ones so they are last i'm gonna go 87 i'm gonna go 48s i'll go green and i'll go gold last honestly I don't know why. I understand why the green doesn't do it for some people. I just think it's cool. Uh, I implore you in these ever-changing and concerning times to remain fresh and keep your cheese bagged. Farewell for now. All right. You guys are weird. We're going to wrap up this episode. We'll be back with you on Sunday. Um, We have some news coming up regarding what the next month or so will look like. So stay tuned on that. But for now, we'd like to thank all of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Will Scout for joining the show. Uh, thank you to our name level sponsors, Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Brett Bailey, Terry Driver of Crying Ryan, Hannah's Banana Slam, Jamathong, Taylor Tadjel, Brandon M, Citizen High Five, Craig Kibble, Greech, Hana Lee, Hassam Al Qasem, Jacob Turner, Jake Kiefer, Jeremiah Dobo, Joe Santangelo, Justin and the Angry Mob, Kalen Wood, Cody Stark, Kyle Hashman, Kyle McClure, Matt McKay, Matthew M. Rice, Morley Chaotic, R.A., Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Stacey Lynn, Zach Spring, Andrew Bohan, Sam Bankson, 
Adam, I wish I could finish like Ernie. Another former junior goalie turned golfer, Antonio Gracias, BJ Crisco, Colorado 14ers, Connor Leighton, Dave W., Evans Bingo Card, Jeremy Brocker, John Evans, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Matt Keeler, as good as it gets, Reed, Stan Olson, Trevor Pebavar, Vaxed, Waxed, and 18 million over the cap. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.